So, uh, Genesis 34. Um, one of the best parts of the Bible, but one of the most difficult parts of the Bible is how real it is. It doesn't skip over hard things. It doesn't paint a picture of like a rosy reality. Um, it doesn't uh, say that there are no such things as, as dark times. It is um, a book that attempts to accurately reflect what we feel on this earth here and now. And sometimes I, I think I read passages like this or some other parts in Genesis. There's a few really other difficult passages coming up too. And I'm just like, I wish, I wish that wasn't there. Especially when I'm preaching it. Like, I wish this, I wish, I wish this wasn't here. And one of the great things, um, so we, we go through books of the Bible typically, and one of the great things about that is that the book of the Bible that we're going through gets to set the pace and the agenda and choose the text. And one of the bad things about that is that the book of the Bible gets to set the pace and the agenda and choose the text. But I, I think if, if, if we just honestly asked ourselves, what would our Bible be like if we didn't have stories like this? It would be one that doesn't actually accurately reflect what we feel day to day. Like what we actually have, because we have these, these really horrific, difficult stories, is a God who handed down his word to us that accurately reflects the way we feel. And like if you're in here and you've experienced sexual abuse or um, injustice of any kind, like I want a God who says something about that. Like I don't want a religious text or a proverb or a scripture that doesn't paint a reality of what you're feeling. Right? I want a God who says, who says twofold, right? I want a God that says, hey, th- th- this is not the way things should be. Like, this is not right. What happened to Dinah is not right. Or like, I want a God who says that. I also want a God who says, hey, I, I love Dinah. I have compassion for Dinah. I care for Dinah. And, and I hold that equally as high as my desire for justice for the things that have happened. You don't get to that place without the Bible diving into some really dark things. You don't get to see a very just, caring, compassionate God unless there is injustice, unless there is a lack of care. He says, this is not the way things are supposed to be. He says, sexual assault, sexual violence, this is not the way things are supposed to be. And we know that people in this room have been affected by that. Statistically, that's, it's, we know that is the case. One in five women have, have experienced um, rape or attempted rape One in three women, 33% of the women in this room have experienced some sort of sexual violence or attempted sexual violence. One in seven men have experienced sexual violence or attempted sexual violence. And so I know as we work through these things, as we talk about this story, as we bring up this particular kind of injustice again and again, I know for a lot of people in this room, it might be triggering. It might bring back a, a certain point in time it might bring us something um, that you either have or haven't processed through or something that you have or haven't told anyone. And, and I can understand, I, and I completely could understand, like you might be tempted to kind of just like block a little bit of this out, whether it's this passage or parts of this sermon. But I want to encourage you through this scripture and, and through our time today, God wants to engage you with these things. He wants to talk to us about these things. He wants to tell us that, that, that injustice is not the way things are supposed to, or not the way it's supposed to be. Not just this kind of injustice, but injustice at large. Right? Because another thing we see in our story is, is, yes, the horrific initial injustice that happened against Dinah, but we also see the responses to that injustice. Right? In fact, most of the ink in this chapter is spent not on the horrific thing that happened, but on the way that God's people responded to it. 
And so it is a story about an injustice committed against Dinah, but it's also a story about the inappropriate and inadequate responses to that injustice. And so what we actually see in this passage is that injustice is met with injustice. And no one wins. Like the end of the story, no one comes out no one comes out on top, not that that's the goal. No one comes out cared for. No one comes out, ultimately, no one comes out justified. No one. No one is truly justified. And so our main point, kind of big takeaway for the day. Again, this should be a slide, but because of my wisdom, I waited till this morning. Our big point, our big takeaway for today is when injustice is met with injustice, no one wins. When injustice is met with injustice, no one wins. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I just kind of want to slide this across the table for you to think about as, as we talk about this idea of justice, as we work through this passage. Like, also, if, it, if, if you're not a Christian and this is your first time coming to church, what a, what a, what a week to choose. <laughs> well, what a week. But I, I just want to slide this across the table as we talk about this idea of justice. Is, is where do we get that idea in the first place? Where, where does this deep desire for justice come from in the first place? Especially if you kind of maybe consider yourself an atheist. Like, if, if that's the case, then um, this idea that all we are is time, matter, and, and just a, a whole slew of random things happening, that kind of means that things are inconsequential, there aren't consequences, then this idea of justice shouldn't even necessarily exist. C.S. Lewis, he's, he's an author, apologist. You guys have probably, a lot of you probably heard of him. Um, he talks about this a lot in his books. He says that initially, his strike against the existence of a God was... Um, just the fact that the universe was cruel and unjust. But he thought about it a little more, and he's like, well, where did I get this idea of just in the first place? Where did I get this desire for justice in the first place? And he, he throws out a line that maybe you've heard, a man cannot tell that a line is crooked unless he knows what a straight line looks like. And so in our time today, we're just going to walk through the passage. Um, and we're going to particularly look at the various characters we see and the injustices that they commit or that are committed to them. We'll look at the five main characters. We'll look at Dinah, Shechem, Hamor, Jacob, and Jacob's sons. Again, just imagine there's a slide that makes it way easier for you to understand. <laughs> Dinah, Shechem, Hamor, Jacob, and Jacob's sons. And along the way, we'll kind of ask the question in our own lives, um, how should we respond to injustice? How should we respond when things like this or this exact scenario happens? In other words, how should we go about enacting justice? And we're not going to get like super practical, but we're just going to kind of lay some foundational principles as we think about that. So the first one, verse one. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, 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 that, that word, the prince of the land saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this girl for my wife. In more plain terms, Shechem raped Dinah. There's, there's no doubt about that as you read the way it's translated here. And if you look at the original language, the, the verbiage they use is, is violence. The, the word translates as violence. He committed violence against her. And uh, the, the Bible won't let us victim blame in any sense, right? Dinah was not going out to see Shechem. She was going out to see the women of the land. We can't ask the question, like, what was she wearing? What was she drinking? What was she doing out at this time? Where, why was she in this place? She's likely a 14, 15, 16-year-old girl. 
And so Shechem is entirely at fault here. Shechem views her as simply an object of passion or an object of lust or something or someone that could purely please him. And not only does he do this, the text says that he seized her and he laid with her, but then also that he spoke tenderly to her afterwards. Right, so not only uh, does he commit this horrible act, but afterwards he, it almost seems like he tries to kind of twist it and smooth things over and use his power and his influence with his position. This could literally be like a case study of like a class act narcissist. Right after objectifying a woman, used his own influence and power to kind of try to make it go away or to smooth things over or make it turn out in his advantage. This is the first injustice we see in this passage. And to be very clear, this thing breaks the very heart of God. It's devastating to him. To see the people that he's formed in the womb, both Dinah and Shechem, to see something like that committed against a child of his, it absolutely devastates him. It breaks his heart. It grieves him that, that Dinah was objectified and that she will likely carry this with her the rest of her life in some way, shape, or form. And God desires justice to be done. And oftentimes, God brings about justice through his people, through governing structures, and things of the like. Right, we have eternal justice, right? final judgment, where um, heaven and hell are destinations, but we also have temporary justice that God wants us to enact. Micah 6, God has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but justice? and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What does the Lord require of you but justice? Isaiah 1, learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. And so, not only does God grieve when this kind of injustice happens, he grieves when his people don't do anything about it. Or they're silent. Or they mishandle it greatly because their motivations are skewed. So don't mistakenly think that, that, that silence are not acting on injustice, whether it's something as horrific and large as this or something much more minor. Don't think it's just silence or inaction. Silence isn't just silence, it's disobedience. Because God has commanded us, seek justice, do justice, enact justice, correct oppression. And what, what that means, what he calls us to, it's more than just like virtue signaling, Right? It's, it's more than that, which virtue signaling for, for all its negatives, like one of the few positive things, like I understand people, like, and I get this temptation too. Um, like people want to virtue, like, hey, I, I'm not this kind of person and I don't think this kind of way. But one of the positive things that come out of virtue signaling is that people see something horrific and they see something that's done and they're like, I don't know what to do. We have to do something. We have to do something. Whether it was George Floyd or the Me Too movement or, or, or justice for the victims of Larry Nassar, any of those things, any of those people, a lot of us saw that and we said, we have to do something. And so, step one, when we think about enacting justice, when we think about the starting point, is acknowledging the fact that God wants us to do justice. Justice isn't some worldly construct that's tied to the culture of the day. Culture of the day. This is a deep desire of God. This is embedded in the heart of God. That is the starting point for justice. And so, for us, it's not just acknowledging that God wants us to do justice, it's do you want to do justice? 
Right? Does your heart speed up or feel angry or upset when you see that uh, once every 68 seconds someone in America is sexually assaulted or that you see another black man is improperly incarcerated? Right? Or systemic racism still at works in other ways or domestic violence or week after week after week mass shootings over and over and over again. Does your heart anger and break and, uh, for those kind of things? And as I say these things, like, I realize it's easy for us to kind of go numb like, because we see those so often. But friends, let's not be mistaken. The heart of God has never gone numb to those kind of things. Every single time, it breaks his heart. Every single time, it grieves him greatly. And so when you see these things, whether it's on the inside or the outside, are you screaming, we have to do something? We have to. I'm not, I'm not kind of laying out like what we should do. That's a whole different discussion. But I'm saying, are we on the same page that, that we have to do something? And with Dinah, we see the responses of the people in this passage. They, in part, in part, they say we have to do something. Some of them, in part, say we have to do something. But their approach is wrong. Right? We just talked about the starting point was acknowledging that God wants us to do justice. That's not their starting point. Their starting point isn't the heart of God. Their starting point isn't love and compassion uh, for Dinah along with God's desire for justice. Their motivations weren't genuine. Every single character in the story is off. One commentary noted that Shechem viewed her as an object of passion. Hamor viewed her as a bargaining chip. Her brothers viewed her as a source of moral outrage. And Jacob viewed her with passive indifference. And so all the characters in this story, they saw the injustice, they heard about the injustice, but they didn't respond the right way. These characters, these people in the story, they responded to injustice with injustice. And remember our main point, when injustice is met with injustice, no one wins. When injustice is met with injustice, no one is justified. The next character to consider is Hamor, Shechem's father. One of the themes in Genesis thus far, if you've kind of been tracking with us for the past, not just a few weeks, but really just since the beginning in the fall, um, it's kind of like, uh, it's like father, like son. That's one of the themes. It's kind of family brokenness or family strengths that kind of carry along, that get passed down. And uh, we see uh, in a minute how this is painfully true with Jacob and Jacob's sons, but we also see this with Hamor and Shechem. Shechem doesn't think, seem to think he's done anything wrong. Like, did you sense that when you read it? Like, there's no sense of guilt. And neither does his father. Like, there's no hint, not even a small hint of, like, good fatherly advice or correction or reprimandment or, in this case, severe punishment. There's nothing like that. And look what he does. He tries to appease his own son and his injustice and use it to his own advantage. Verses 8 through 10, Hamor is talking to Jacob's sons and says this, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Let's get down to verse 23. Hamor says to the people in the town where they live, he says, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. Hamor sees this injustice as nothing more, Hamor sees this injustice as nothing more than an opportunity an opportunity for himself, an opportunity for self-gain, political gain, economic gain. 
And this sounds horrible, but that undergirding emotion of what can I get out of this is something that exists in us all. Like I know, I, I don't think anyone in this room has faced a situation exactly like this, but, but that undergirding selfish emotion that Hamor exemplified exists in us all. So step one of enacting justice is understanding God desires justice. Step two is a reorientation from you to them. Step two is a reorientation from you to them. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, what can I get out of this? And maybe more relevant to, to, to our, our, our day and age is, is, how does this make me look? Or we just talked about virtue signaling. That's what it is. How does this make me look? Because God's concern and, and care and compassion in this moment is, is on the, the people that the injustice has been against first and foremost. And that's where ours should be too, not ourselves. You'll notice too, Hamor is interestingly talking to Jacob's sons instead of Jacob. Now this is maybe slightly odd, but let's like give him the benefit of, of, of the doubt. Like uh, at this day and age, um, once a, a patriarch or a father became too old, kind of the, his sons would kind of step in and, and take that role for him. So like maybe, it doesn't seem like this is the case, but like maybe Jacob's just reached that point. But when you look closely, you look closely that how he handles this situation is actually maybe worst of all. It actually makes him more culpable than anyone else other than Shechem. Verse 5 through 8, there's a confrontation. Like Jacob, you're face to face with the man and his father who raped your daughter. You can begin the process of enacting justice. You can begin the process not of reversing what happened, not of undoing something wrong that happened, but you can begin the process of caring for Dinah, you can begin the process of holding these people accountable, and you can go about this rightly. And now to be honest, I didn't read into like at that day and age, like whether it's Old Testament law or culturally, like what would that process look like? I'm not, I didn't read into that, I'm not sure, but, but one thing I can say for certain is that Jacob's response was not what it was supposed to be. He was silent. He doesn't seem to get mad. Not seeing red. He doesn't call Shechem and his father out. He doesn't step up as, as patriarch in the family. And in fact, he kind of steps back and he falls silent. He doesn't stand up for his daughter. It, it kind of seems like he doesn't care. And this is especially painful if, you, if you've been with us. Like Jacob, he's kind of an emotive man. It's not like he's a really stoic figure. We've seen him express emotion greatly in the past and in future chapters when um, he's, he thinks a son of his is dead, he weeps and, and he's beside himself. He just can't handle it. But here it's nothing. He's silent and indifferent. And at the end of the day, his motivations, his heart are revealed. Look at the end of the passage, verse 30. This is after his sons have, 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 which we'll talk about what his sons did in a minute, but after his sons have killed every male in the city and, and plundered the place. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought ter- trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. He's not upset about Dinah. Not in any sense. Like, there's no notion of Something terrible has happened to my family and my daughter. No, he's concerned about himself. 
In Jacob's response, and, and we covered this a little bit already, but in Jacob's response, we see that silence and inaction towards injustice is not just silence and inaction. It's injustice. I'm sure you can think of or have seen lots of quotes, whether it's MLK or some other activist or some other historical figure that's just like silence in the face of oppression, right, is kind of complicity, one of my favorites. Janetta Sagan, who's a great human rights activist, um, silence in the face of injustice is complicity with the oppressor. And so Jacob was complicit in what happened and the way he didn't respond. Jacob committed injustice against injustice with his lack of response to it. Remember, when injustice is met with injustice, no one wins. When injustice is met with injustice, no one is justified. The last characters I want us to look at, Jacob's sons, Dinah's brothers, as, as both a brother to a, a younger sister and, and a father, like I can sympathize with their anger. And I think anyone in this room can sympathize with their anger. And honestly, it's kind of like, finally, someone in this story is showing some kind of emotion about the horrible thing that has happened. Like, I'm glad they're angry. Like, f- like I'm glad they're angry. That's the one glimmer of good that might be in this story is that they seem genuinely angry about what has happened. Finally, someone in the story seems to care about Dinah. Someone finally wants justice. But again, in their attempt to enact justice, they, they go too far and ironically kind of become the same thing that Shechem was. Many of the scholars and commentaries noted in like a pithy way that, um, that the, the, the object that was used to commit injustice against Dinah was the same object that Simeon and Levi used to commit inju- injustice against the males in the city. On top of this, they used the very sign and symbol that God had given to his people to represent, hey, I am your God and you are my people. They used this as a tool of injustice, as a tool of evil. That's responding to injustice with injustice. And ultimately, what, they did, what did they do? They, they, they used God and the things of God rather than involve God. And that's the third way to enact justice properly. It's, it's simple, but it's not necessarily intuitive Involve God, don't use God. Notice this passage, God's not mentioned once. Not even one line, not even one word, not even like read between the lines kind of thing. He's not mentioned once. And notice coincidentally, or not so coincidentally, that things go horribly wrong. Things go massively wrong for everyone involved. And here's the point behind that. Yes, you, yes, it is involve God as you enact justice, but he's not just a consultant in the matter either. He's the foundation of it. What I mean by that is, is if we believe that God's heart is for justice and that it's something that ultimately flows forth from him, then we can't have true justice apart from God. And so it's foolish for us as Christians to try to enact justice in any way without involving God. And like as, on, on a personal note, like, I think um, in my own life, like when I see injustices happen in the news or, or whatever, or, or people in this church, like I pray for those people. I pray for the families of those people. But I don't, I don't often pray for God to, to be with me, be with us as we think about how to process this and how to navigate it, if I'm honest. Like I think that's a thing that is prayed for less often. I'm not saying we pray for that more or less than the victims and the, the people who are um, receiving these injustices and justice if it happened to them. I'm saying, how often do we involve God in that process? 
It's foolish for us to try to enact justice in any kind of way without him. To do so leads us to what we see in Genesis 34. Right? No one consulted God. No one asked him anything. No one acknowledged him. So as we close, sorry, as we approach our conclusion, I saw you got up, Mike. <laughs> the most heartbreaking thing is not just what happened to Dinah, but it's, it's no one values her properly. No one sees her with proper dignity. They see this scenario as kind of what can I get out of this? No one seems to see her as a valuable member of the family. No one sees her as a loved child of God. And no one brings her justice rightly. So this story, as it concludes, just begs the question, who's going to bring justice for Dinah? This story ends in a way that is extremely unsatisfying. Who will do it? Who's going to bring justice for Dinah? Who will love and care for Dinah properly in the midst of what has happened? This story reminds me of Larry Nasser's trial years ago and something Rachel Denhollander said at that trial. She, uh, Rachel is one of the first victims to, to publicly come forward with allegations against Larry, who was the U.S. gymnastics coach. And in the trial, she was the final of over 150 victims to come forward and say something. And, and this is what she says in the courtroom that day. She says, who is going to tell these little girls that what was done to them matters? That they are seen and valued, that they are not alone, and they are not unprotected. Tell us what was done to us matters, that we are known, we are worth everything, worth the greatest protection the law can offer, the greatest measure of justice available. It's a powerful quote, but it leaves me wondering, who can do that? Can, can you do that? Can I do that? Can we provide the kind of justice that these girls deserved? That the people have experienced abuse and deception have deserved? That the people in this very room have experienced deserved? Can we give the kind of justice on our own that these people deserve? Who can do that? And it's only one. It's not ultimately just you. It's not ultimately just the, uh, me or, or these girls' parents Right? It's the one who ultimately experienced injustice himself on your behalf. It's the one who can look at your scenario and the injustices that you've received and the pain that you've felt and the things that you've gone through and say, I know what that's like and I'm here with you. Who can tell those of us in the room who've experienced such things that you are worthy of eternal love? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And as Jesus' people we have to come alongside him in that and do that too. Who will value, who will declare worthy, who will see them, who will know them and tell them they're worth everything, who will ultimately bring them justice, who will bring Dinah justice? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who writes all of humanity's wrongs. Jesus is the one who sees, values, and knows, and loves those who have had injustices committed against them. If you are here in this room and you have been a victim of sexual abuse or sex, any abuse of any kind, Jesus sees you, Jesus loves you, Jesus knows you. And it's not some 
pithy, kind of joking, gimmicky statement. He does this time and time and time again in the scriptures. Time and time again. I want, us, I want us to see one more thing as we close. One more place where he does this. Remember where we are in our passage. Like geographically, remember where we are. The end of chapter 33 ended with Jacob settling in the city of Shechem. And yes, it may be that Hamor, Shechem's father, just named his son after the city. But later, that city was renamed to Sakar. And at some point in time in, over the years, Jacob builds a well there. Some of you who know your Bible might be starting to connect the, the dots. In the most beautiful, poetic, loving fashion, Fast forward 2,000 years later, Jesus meets a woman at a well in this same spot, in the same city as Dinah. He meets a woman at a well who has experienced sexual brokenness, who has experienced abuse of some kind. And in this moment, Jesus brings forth the love, the compassion, the value, the worth, and the care that Jacob, Hamor, Shechem, and Jacob's sons did not. John 4, Jesus and the woman of the well gives us a picture of how Dinah should have been treated. I've talked about this story before. It's, it's one of my favorite passages in scripture. But a woman comes to the well in the middle of the day to, to draw water out, and Jesus engages with her, which step one, that's, that's abnormal, given where she comes from and, and where he comes from and just kind of social constructs of the day, that's abnormal. And it's quickly revealed that this woman has had five husbands, and is currently with someone that isn't her husband. And now, this, I, the text doesn't say this, this may be in part to some decisions that she's made or some sins that she's committed, but we also know back in that day, women couldn't initiate divorce. And so in some way, shape, or form, these are things that were done to her. And like poetry in motion, we learn that this woman is a descendant of Jacob. So Jesus is face-to-face -face with someone that's directly related to Dinah in the same city that Dinah was in. And Jesus gives her the proper justice and love and care and compassion that her father, Jacob, did not. What Jesus offered this woman, he offered himself as a living sacrifice, as living waters. And he tells this woman um, that, that he is the Messiah that she has been waiting for. Which, side note, you wonder if Jesus values and empowers women. Like, one, he's interacting with this woman in a way that culturally at the time would have been odd, but two, this is the first person in the Gospel of John that hears this idea that Jesus is the Messiah directly. And she goes off and she tells others, and she says this, she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. In other words, come see this man, Jesus, who knows me, who knows what I've been through, who knows what, I'm done, what I've done, who knows what's been done to me. And yet he values me, and he loves me, and he's the Savior. So who's going to tell these little girls, these women, these men who have experienced these injustices, that they matter, they are valued, and they are seen, known, and loved? Jesus will. Jesus does. Rachel Denhollander um, again, in the courtroom later, turned her speech directly towards Larry Nasser. And here's what she said. 
Larry, you spoke of praying for forgiveness. But Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment, where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me. So I extend that to you as well. So the final step for enacting justice is realizing that for all parties, everyone involved, grace and forgiveness are eternally offered in Christ Jesus. That's an uncomfortable thought. It really is. It goes against what I want. It probably goes against what many of us in this room want. But this is the gospel. That the grace and forgiveness and love of Jesus is far more powerful than any wrong that has ever been done. This is the gospel. This is what we put our hope in. There's hope for both the one who has received injustice and the one who commits injustice. Through Christ. So as we move into a time of communion to remember the moment in which this became possible, the moment in which justice was completely satisfied when Jesus died on the cross, bearing all your sins, all the injustices that you committed and all the injustices that were committed against you. We do this to remember that. This isn't, I think... We can kind of numb ourselves sometimes to like what we're doing in this particular moment when we take communion. It's not purely symbolic. Like I think there is something powerful that is happening when you're taking communion with your brothers and sisters in Christ around you, remembering the sacrifice and what Jesus did. And so this is something that we do say is, is only reserved for those who consider themselves Christians. Um, if, uh, if you're not a Christian, I would encourage you just to stay in your seat and think about these things that have been said and spoken about the gospel uh, or if it makes you more comfortable, you can, we have to go outside these doors to take communion outside because we can't be in here with food or drink. Uh, if it makes you more comfortable, you can just walk around and, and do a circle. Um, I see people do that too. Um, also, I, I think maybe more than any other week so far, I, I want to highlight the prayer leaders we have at the side of the room. Um, I, I know these things can, I, I know people in this room have experienced these things. I, I know. I have close friends who have experienced these things. I want to encourage you, if that is you, and it is still something, you're pro- still something you're processing, still something you're struggling through, trying to figure out how to navigate or who to talk to, go receive prayer. I'm not promising a solution to everything or a feel-good to everything, but we believe prayer is powerful, and that prayer is directly how we speak to God. So go let someone talk to God on your behalf with you there. And if you need people to talk to, please mark on your connection card. We'd love to connect you with the proper people to help you process through these things. Knowing that ultimately, you receive love, value, worth, and justice from Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are just. Uh, We thank you that you do not let injustices go unpunished, whether it's here on earth or in eternity. God, help us to pursue justice. Help us to enact justice. 
Help us to care properly for the victims of injustice, to show compassion, to come alongside them, to walk with them. God, may we be a church that truly reflects your heart in these kind of things. Amen.